Let's go ahead and start. Uh, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would uh, open up your word to us, that we could better understand who you are, and as a result of that, understand who we are, what our duty is, our responsibility is to you, to worship you and to serve you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, and we ask that you would bless uh, the reading and the study of your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, a topic that's rarely talked about, uh, the will of man and the will of God. God's will, man's will, and so forth. So if you have, uh, I don't know if outlines were handed out, but there should be a little outline that was passed out. Um, we're going to loosely follow that. It's really more of a guide than it is a strict uh, outline to follow. But when we talk about the will of God and the will of man, there are some, some terms that are critical to go over to make sure we understand so that we're uh, defining things from a biblical perspective. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of definitions could be given. I like uh, A.W. Pink. If you ever get a chance to read any of his stuff, uh, The Sovereignty of God is uh, fantastic. Uh, it goes over the attributes of, of God. Uh, it's another book he has, Attributes. But um, he defines will as the faculty of choice, the immediate cause of action. Choice necessarily implies a refusal of one thing and the acceptance of another. Okay. We can go with that. Uh, you choose one thing uh, instead of another. So that makes it seem like it's a pretty simple issue, right? Decree. And this is where we get into God's decrees, uh, the decrees of God. Um, the Reformers said that he had one decree because all events, while plural to us, are of one act to God. So they referred to the decree of God for all things, not the decrees of God. It's a semantic point, but it's an interesting point. Uh, decree. The decree of God is his purpose or determination with respect to future things. The decrees of God relate to all future things without exception. Whatever is done in time was foreordained before time began. So we go from the beginning, the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46 Verses 9 and 10 tell us that, that God has the end from the beginning determined all things that come to pass. And we see that throughout Scripture, a careful examination of, uh, of just a, a reading through Scripture will uh, show that and reveal that. So, and then number two there, God's decrees depend upon His good pleasure. Therefore, they are not suspended upon any condition outside of God. Every decree of God is immutable. And this is another great author. If you get a chance to read, he has a systematic theology called the, the, uh, the elinctic, uh, elinctic Theology, the, the Institutes of Elinctic Theology. He was, uh, Francis Turton was uh, uh, a post-reformer coming a little bit after Calvin, re-systematized Calvin stuff, and he's fantastic. I, I encourage you to, if you get a chance to pick up some of his stuff to do that. But... That's how he was defining that. Every decree of God is immutable, unchangeable, it's set. So when we talk about God's will and we talk about what emanates from God, everything that he's created, everything that he does is a reflection of who he is, his being, his character, his nature. And that's going to be incredibly important as we continue. Foreknowledge. 
And these are just some related terms as they relate to will. There are many, many, many more, uh, but uh, these are just some of the more prominent ones. Foreknowledge, and we're going to discuss decree and knowledge. And this is where it gets kind of, I'm going to shift and... Uh, so, decree and knowledge. This is important. There, there are a whole, there are whole heresies that are devoted to uh, redefining these things. Now, God's decree is that which He has already determined to happen. Okay. If you think of it like an author who writes a book, an author sits down to write a book. Uh, one of my favorite books is The Count of Monte Cristo. Love that book. If you haven't read it, read it. Don't watch the movie. The movie's totally different. But the book is fantastic. And Alexander Dumas, who is the author of that book, writes about uh, Edmond Dantes, who is the main hero of the book. And he goes through a number of things. And when you're reading the book, Edmond Dantes, he actually makes decisions. He actually does things. He goes here and he says this. He reacts to that. And when you read the book or you watch the movie, we would say this is what happened in the story. Edmund did this. Edmund said that. But God's decree is that which is written, the end from the beginning. So here you are, right here, and we look at it on a human level. Oh, today we're going to go out uh, after church to lunch, or uh, tomorrow, next week we have this appointment. Those kinds of things we would say are things that we set up, events yet to happen. But for God's decree, that is the foundation of everything that happens. So God has predetermined all those things that are to happen. His knowledge, God does not look into the future and see something happening and then go back in time before he creates anything and say, well, I know that person's going to do this, so I'm going to make it so that they do that. I'm going to arrange circumstances. I'm going to write out history so that they do these things. God's decree is not that. God's decree comes from his nature, comes from who he is. He determines what's going to happen, and then it happens. So we would say in a very technical, philosophical sense that God's knowledge, what he knows, is based on his decree. Does that make sense? Yes, no? And by the way, I'm hoping for some discussion in this. I I'd be happy to talk to myself, so that's either way. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's actually something that we're going to get into. That's a great setup. And by the way, this was something that, um, that we're going over, which I thought, thought greatly complemented the study through Romans. Uh, it's throughout, especially when you get in that, you know, 7, 8, and 9. Well, it's throughout, but 8, and 9, 10 is really heavy in this. So uh, it, it's absolutely critical, but Andy, you're right. Um, this kind of sets the stage for being able to answer those kinds of problems that come up. And they're natural problems. Uh, Paul addresses some of those, those uh, very questions. You know, he acts as if, as if he's the uh, uh, 
opponent to his own point, and he raises questions and then answers those for the opponent. So, good point. Sovereignty, the authority over all creation to will and to work his good pleasure for his own glory. And if you'll go with me very quickly to Ezekiel 36, 32. So this is, this is said in multiple places, uh, this kind of thing. What God does, and, and by the way, if you ever are asked, why did God save you? Uh, it was not for, for you. God did not create you and then look at you and say, uh, for your glory, I'm going to save you and redeem you. He does all of these acts of saving and redeeming for his glory. Um, John Piper wrote a, wrote a book years ago. It's probably 25 years ago now called Desiring God. And in it, he talks about Christian hedonism. That's an interesting thing because to be hedonistic is to be self-focused, is to be selfish, is to pursue your own pleasures. It's those, that kind of thing. And he says God is the epitome of hedonism. Now, we look at that term in a very negative light because we apply it to all of the things that man is, selfish and sinful. But for a God who exists outside of any of his creation, who is transcendent above all of that, for him to think of himself first is holy. We call that holiness. He's set apart. He's righteous. He's pure. He's good. So, for God to seek his own pleasure and his own glory is a biblical doctrine. And we should want what he wants and love what he loves, and so we should be pursuing the glory of God, not our own glory. This is why John can say that uh, as Christ increases, may I decrease, because it's his glory. So, uh, Ezekiel 36, 32, just to uh, show this point, isn't that a beautiful, just lost it, I don't know where we are, there we go, got to be careful, 36, 32, not for your sake I do this, says the Lord God, let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel, and go back and read the context, I don't want to take the, con the time to read the context for all of these passages, but it's very clear that God does things. He saves, he redeems for his own glory. Uh, this is repeated in Isaiah, in the Psalms, and in other places. Okay. Now, nature, this is where the rubber starts hitting the road in terms of where we're coming from. It's easy on the one hand to say God deserves all the praise and all the glory, and that as his creatures, that's what he is due, and we call that worship, and that's wonderful. But when we get into nature, we're talking about now something that's a little heavier because we have to define nature as that which is essential to a thing all right this is the basic commonsensical observational approach to life to reality and so a horse is a horse of course of course right you know the, but a horse is not a dog 
This goes into the idea, some of you guys may have heard this, I hope all of you have. Uh, but an important point, uh, the law of non-contradiction. Right? A cannot equal non-A. So when we talk about A, a horse, a horse can be anything other than what it's not. It cannot be anything other than what it's not. It can't, a horse cannot be a dog. A dog is not a horse. Are you following this? Okay. So when I talk about the nature of man and I start saying, well, what does the Bible tell us man's nature is? It's sinful, right? Hopeless, without Christ. I mean, Paul goes through great lengths in various books to tell us these things, as well as the Old Testament prophets and even, even uh, the Pentateuch and so forth, right? Uh, Genesis 6, 5, one of the reasons we're given by God himself as to why he destroyed the world with a flood was because the imaginations of man's thoughts were evil continually, Right? So we're told from Scripture that our hearts, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it. This is the theme of Scripture concerning the nature of man. So when we talk about, and we're going to bring all these loose ends together when we talk about the will of God and the will of man. The will of God, he decrees all things. He doesn't look outside of himself. Now the will of man, what is man? Uh, in terms of his nature, he is a trapped an enslaved being to his own sin. Jesus, did he not say? You're enslaved to your own sin. Whoever is a slave to sin, whoever uh, follows those things is a slave to sin. Right? So, Absolutely, and, which is why he had to come in the flesh. Uh, and we, we can get into that. That's, that's got a deep rabbit hole too. But <laughs> right, right, Acts 2.23. So uh, to give you the, the word here in, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where it talks about you who were dead in sins and trespasses, right, uh, who were by nature, that word nature, who were by nature children of wrath. Physis is the Greek there. Uh, the sum of innate properties and powers by which one thing differs from another. It's a very basic definition. The nature is something that is inherent and unchangeable in a thing. So my dog is going to do what dogs do. And because every creature that acts like a dog and does those things 
does those things is because we, that's why we call it a dog. If a dog, uh, you know, climbed up a tree and built a nest, we'd call it a squirrel. Well, a squirrel's not a dog, right? So we have these distinctions. One of the things about the Christian religion is that it makes distinctions more than anything else, more than any other people group, any other religious group. The unique factor that makes Christians distinct from all other religions is the fact that we make distinctions. We don't commingle ideas and concepts. So God is not man. There's a, there's a distinction, right? In terms of being, God is God, and we worship Him as God. What do the Mormons do? Well, there are multiple gods, and God was once a man, right? As we are, and He was sinful, and He had to learn, and He had to grow. So they're commingling those two concepts, right? And you can look at all the other religions that do that. We have to keep things distinct. So God's nature, and we're getting to the point here in just a minute where a lot of discussion, I think, is going to come out. So God's nature, all things are defined according to nature, character, and attributes of God. So a thing is good because God has declared it so. We cannot take our perspectives of a matter and claim that God must meet our definitions. And this happens all the time, right? People say it's unfair that God sends unbelievers to hell. Well, wait a minute. We do this all the time. I, I recently uh, even talked to a person whose family member had become sick, and I was talking to them about this, and, uh, terminally ill, and this person actually said, well, I just, I can't believe in a God who would do this, who would allow this kind of evil to happen. So where is, this person is here, and they are looking at something, and they're saying, that is bad. That is evil, right? Uh, sin in the world, sickness, hunger. The, they're looking at that and saying it's evil, so then they project their definition of evil onto God. And they say, well, God must be evil. How can I worship a God who is evil? No, no, no. God has decreed this evil. That doesn't make the evil good, but it makes it useful to God for his purposes and his glory. We see this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. When Joseph, after all that he had gone through, was thrown into the pit, sold into slavery for two years, accused of adultery with Potiphar's wife, uh, all kinds of things happened to him. And then his brothers come. They don't even know... He's him. They thought he was dead. Right? And he finally has this encounter with him at a, at a meal that he prepared for him. And he confronts him on all these things. And he said, hey, don't feel bad. What you did to me, you meant for evil. But God meant it for good. One of the things I like to use uh, in talking to people about this is if I came at you with a knife, and my intention was to cut you. Would that be good or bad? Bad? Most of you would say bad, I think, right? Now, you've been shot, and I'm a doctor, and the knife is a scalpel. My intention is to come at you and cut you with a knife. Bad or good? Good. 
without the knowledge, we jump to conclusions. We see evil things, and we immediately say, oh, that's bad, that's evil. And we don't understand the purposes of God in using that bad and evil for good. We don't know how God's using, instrumentally, the evil. Okay, so it's an important thing to understand that we should, according to God's word, and this is where we're also going to get into a, a distinction of God's wills, the, the two different kinds of wills that God has, important as we move forward with this, God has what's called the decretive will, right, based on his decree. He has spoken and all things come to pass according to his word prior to any or without any knowledge outside of God himself. And then we have his precepts, his laws, his commands, the preceptive will of God, right? God has said, thou shalt not murder. Someone called the revealed will. Yes. I think you can see and absorb the scriptures. Yes. Yeah, there definitely are synonyms for this, you know. Uh, the sovereign will of God, the perfect will of God, that kind of thing. But these are just kind of uh, uh, the two distinctive terms for God's wills. Now, he, God does not, he is not schizophrenic. He doesn't say, I'm going to determine for my son to suffer on the cross. But I really don't want to. Okay? What God has said is murder is wrong. And he's decreeing the death of his son through those means. Acts 2.23, I don't have it written down, but that, I left it uh, this way intentionally so I'd be able to kind of roam freely. But if you'll look at Acts 2.23 with me real quick. It's just before, in between Genesis and Revelation. This is Peter. In his sermon, men of Israel, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, Jesus the Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you. <laughs> you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. By the predetermined foreknowledge, you couldn't have done it without God having determined it. But you still did. That's, that's these wills in one verse. And there are multiple places there. It's also the epitome of what Joseph revealed to us. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, the both end. And, it's, and here's the thing, right? And we're going to get into this in just a second. But that doesn't excuse man for his sin. We're, we're going to talk about some of the possible heresies that come out of this. So God is perfect. He's holy, just, pure, righteous, uh, wise, love, but he's also wrath. Now get this for a second. Can God change? Does God ever change? No, he doesn't ever change. Is God wrath? Did God have wrath before he created me? Yeah. He did. God was wrathful before he even created anything. Because for him to create something and then add to sin and God say, nah, that really is. 
now would be a change in God's nature. It would be something outside of God changing the nature and the character and the person of God. And that cannot happen. So here's the thing. If God loves you today, he's always loved you and always will. That doesn't change. But if God's wrath is on you, and I'm talking about eternally, in terms of maybe election, which we'll get to later, God's always either loved or hated you. And so it's a very, that's what people don't like to hear, right? And yet that's the decree of God. That's how he is, that's how he has determined things. And another good way to think about it is God is, is supremely merciful and gracious every bit as much as he is righteous and just. Yeah. The two sides don't play against each other. They're all in perfect harmony. Right. And we see that come together completely at the cross. Okay, man's nature. Man is inherently sinful, selfish, a hater of God, dead in sins, prefers the things of the world, loves darkness, is unable and unwilling to repent, believe or call upon God to be saved. All of those are, have thousands of Bible verses behind them, right? We, we see that. Now, points to consider, and this is interesting. I, I gave it to you on your, um, on your handout, and for those of you who like to pretend you're like you're a doctor once in a while and just scribble in Latin or whatever, I included the Latin, not because I... I'm some kind of expert in Latin, but that's just the, the classical, historical uh, reference for these points. So if you think about man, man in his journey, here's man in four different states. This was something that was made uh, popular by Thomas Boston. Uh, before him, it was, uh, it was, or after him, it was uh, also brought to the forebear uh, by Turretin, who I referenced earlier. But it's called the fourfold state of man. This was Adam before the fall. Okay? Here is everyone before, this is while they're in sin, right? Here is the person who is redeemed but still alive on earth. And then this is the person, this is heaven. So what we have here is the fourfold state of the believer, not the unbeliever. The unbeliever has a different destination, right? But in Adam, when Adam was created before the fall, we have him with the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. He was created without any DNA influence of sin, without any external influence of sin. Now, I'm not talking about temptations. I'm talking about something that actually forced him or pushed him to sin, right? He was created in a perfect environment. <coughs> so, passe peccare, possible to sin. He's righteous, but he's mutable. He can change. You go to the next one, in the state of sin, and all of us have been there. Right? You're born, you grow up. Before you come to the Lord, before he opens your heart and changes your, uh, opens your eyes and changes your mind, you're in this state of rebellion. Even if you grew up in a Christian home and you go to church and you love your family and you're doing all these great things, you think, you know, you sing Kumbaya at the camps and all that. Even if you do all that stuff, you still are in a state of sin before, if you're not redeemed. Okay? So it's non passe non peccare. 
Okay? It's not possible, passe, possible, pacare, right? Uh, sin, imperfections. It's not, you're not able not to sin. You are going to sin because you live in a state of sin. Your corrupt nature after the fall is what that is. Next one, passe non picare, you're able not to sin. So now, as a believer, we are able not to sin, not on our own efforts, not by our own works, but by the Holy Spirit who works in us. So because God redeems his people, he then empowers them through the Spirit to actually obey, to love, and obey the law. So it's possible for the redeemed person not to sin. Not that their nature's changed in terms of you're always sinful, right? You're always a sinner. But it's possible for you not to sin. Now your acts, the acts that you do throughout your life, are truly glorifying to God. Listen, you can have somebody, uh, an old lady breaks down uh, on the side of the road, needs a tire change, right? Somebody can stop by, super great, you know, good old country boy, stops by, helps change her flat tire, and goes on. And he's an unbeliever. That work means nothing. And I don't mean to make it sound unappreciative, but it means nothing. In the scope of eternity for his salvation. Or as we said last couple of weeks, that filthy rag mm-hmm. has no impact on your salvation right. or your justification before the Lord. But it does play into the deeds that are judged in Romans 2 6, right? Which is judgment, not salvation. You're right, and that distinction is important. Yeah, I certainly don't mean this, uh, his actions. In terms, they weren't good. But not in a salvific sense. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that context. Yeah. And then the last one is not able to sin. So we're going to, we look forward to the time when everything that we do, we don't have to worry about offending somebody. We don't have to worry about offending Christ, breaking a law, breaking a commandment. Did I say the right thing? Did I? It's going to be a perfect state of relationship and fellowship with God. So that's going to be nice. Now, this is important too when we talk about will. Um, Adam was our best representative. Okay? It's easy for us to say, if that had been me, I wouldn't have sinned. Right? Right? Uh, or for us to look back and think back to maybe, uh, man, I wish, I wish God had given me a chance. And this is why I put David and Goliath underneath that, this point. Think about this for just a second. When Goliath goes out every day, who were the Philistines putting forth as their best man? Goliath. Israel was flummoxed by this. They're like, we don't know who to put for, even though Scripture says that Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Okay? Even though he was the biggest, strongest guy in Israel, the king, he didn't want to go out and face Goliath. So the Philistines put forth their best representative. David now comes out eventually, and he is Israel's best representative. So think about it with Adam. Adam 
was the best representative. If God had made you Adam or Eve or both, right? That was tough. He puts you in the garden. You're going to do exactly what Adam did because he was the best representative we had. So because Adam sinned, that means you couldn't do any better. He, rep he was our best shot at keeping the law of God. And he blew it. Which means nobody could have done it. So that puts us all into the category of complete failure and sin. Nobody would be able to keep the law of God. And then you have the cycle of fellowship. This is important. I'm covering all these kind of topics because when we talk about free will, it plays into what our nature is. Okay? One thing that's helpful too with Adam as you move on is the fact that look, look at what essentially the law was for Adam. It was a single prohibition. Yeah. You have everything. Freely, rightly, it's beautiful, it's very good. You have it all, just don't do this one thing. Right? It's good that we, we have the law. <laughs> but, but in effect, that, that was the law that, that Adam and Eve had. Yeah. And, yet, and then when Eve was tempted, was Eve not able to precisely recite the commandment of God word for word right back to the serpent? Huh. Well, and that's what makes us without excuse is that we know in our heart, we know what God requires. We know that there is a God uh, by nature and so forth. So, exactly right. And then the same Cain and Abel, who's counseling Cain? Who's Cain's counselor? Right? When we try to walk along someone who is struggling or dominated by sin, and we feel so woefully inadequate, it's helpful to go to Cain, because who was Cain's counselor? God was counseling Cain about the hate and the murder that was not only in his heart, but about to be unfolded on his brother. Yeah. God is the counselor to get right to the depth of this. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right from the beginning. Yeah. So, so this is important too. I draw the triangle because this is a quick reference for the Trinity. Okay. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, God. All right. And then you have man down here. And this cycle of fellowship is important to understand because it was perfect. When God created Adam in the garden, uh, God gave Adam righteousness. He created him perfect and holy. Right? It is good, God says. And because of that righteousness, man was able... To have perfect, uninhibited, pure fellowship with God. Okay? So the righteousness from God is what gives us the foundation for fellowship with Him. Adam sins. This is now broken. We have no righteousness, right? We've abandoned that. Rebelled against it. And because of that, we have no fellowship with God. So man is stuck below here. Now, think about this in terms of will. Can you will yourself righteousness? If, if the source is God, can you just will yourself to be righteous? No. 
Can you, by your own definitions and your own dictates and mandates, can you have fellowship force God into a relationship with you? No. You're stuck. Right? Our will is down here. So every choice that we have, every choice that we make, is one that is unrighteous and without fellowship with God. God has to be the one to intervene and restore this righteousness and restore the fellowship. So when God intervenes, when God comes in, this is what, and this is true for every single person. And so if someone dies in this state, they're without hope. There's an eternal hell that awaits them. So this has to be based on an individual you know, yes, yes, no, some, some are no, some are yes. I mean, so God operates based on his, and again, Romans 9, we get into that, uh, the teaching of election, right? I'm trying to stay away from that topic, but it does come in in terms of the, the, the concept into this, okay? Um, but it is important because our will has nothing, it has no factor, no bearing on influence for God to choose me. I'm not a better sinner or a worse sinner than any of you. I'm a sinner. There is no better or worse. Right? If I do 20 fewer bad things in my life than the convicted, you know, felon, that make me a good person? My standard is not those who are locked up in prison. Shouldn't be. My standard is God's holy righteousness, his, his law, his commands. So, that's that. Now, we get into some questions that are raised, and, and uh, we can dance around these. This is super, super cursory. So, for any one of these points, it could be a whole series of Sunday school lessons. But I, I just wanted to kind of hit, hit the uh, peaks here. Uh, there is a question. Uh, if, if I have, if my will is, uh, let me back up. Sorry, guys. Let me say one more thing about will. This is important. There are three things about will that uh, are inherent in having a will. One is knowledge. One is ability. And one is desire. All three of these, Scripture addresses. If you're going to exercise, if your will is truly free from anything else, you have to have all knowledge, all ability, and a pure desire. Okay? If you're going to have true free will. If any of these are impacted, it's, it's a no-go. It's not going to happen. So we look at knowledge. What, is, what does Scripture say the knowledge of man is concerning God? For the natural man does not know the things of God. Right? If the natural man doesn't know the things of God, and Paul goes on to say that it takes the Holy Spirit to enlighten him, to inform him. Remember the confession of Peter? Uh, Mark 8, uh, Matthew 16, I believe it is, both, both books. Uh, Jesus is saying, who do men say that I am? Oh, they say that you're you know, Elias. I come back from the dead. John the Baptist. They don't know who you are. They, they have different ideas. Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter says, Lord, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the, the one promised, right? And what does Jesus say? He says what? Flesh and blood, blood didn't show this to you, reveal this to you, right? But my Father who is in heaven told you this. This knowledge, this knowledge of who Christ is, is a heavenly knowledge. It is a spiritual knowledge. The Holy Spirit has to inform that person. Okay? You can know something factually, but that doesn't mean you know it experientially. I trust people who... I've said they've seen the Great Wall of China. Never been there. I have no experiential knowledge, but I do have a factual knowledge. And the factual knowledge can only get me so far. These are your, this is Romans 1 in terms of knowledge. For the unbeliever, the unrighteous, the ungodly, know the truth about God, but they suppress it. So you have to have knowledge. Now, let me put this into a, a common, a basic uh, uh, analogy for you. Let's say you're running a race. Okay, you're running a marathon. Uh, three times a year, I think, uh, I think you run one, don't you, Jordan? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, let's say you're running a race. It's a marathon. And you're running by, and on the table, there are cups of water. But it has a sign underneath, one cup is poison. One cup has cyanide. You're trying to finish your race, but you just want something to, you know, drink to kind of hydrate you and get you to... And you read the sign and you stop and you're like, one cup. Are you going to take one? You would need to know, have perfect knowledge, which cup has the cyanide in order for you to know which of the other nine to pick. You would have to have that knowledge. You can't know. But what if you're running, and let's say all the cups are, are perfectly okay. All ten cups have per, per, perfect water, and you know that. But what if you're a quadriplegic? What if you're in a wheelchair, and you have to be pushed around? You can't do anything on your own. And you could say, I know what's in those cups. I know it's water. And I want to have some water. Do you have the ability on your own? No. This is, this is the big, big thing that, that people really focus on, that and desire. But ability, people think that man has the ability. Now, somebody look up very quickly, John chapter 6, verse 44. This is an important verse. Just read me the first half of that verse real quick. John 6, 44, anybody? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No, okay, so no one can come to me. What? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who sent me draws him? So look at this for just a second. No one can come to me, Jesus is saying, unless the Father who sent me draws him. A couple of things about this verse. First of all, this word here, draws, in the Greek is the word elkuse. It means uh, this. 
Uh, it was used in extra-biblical writings outside of the Bible. It was used by people who would take a net, a big, heavy net. They would go to a little creek or a little river. They would lay this net over across the river so that it's kind of splaying out on both sides. They would then take the stones that were in the river because they wanted to build a wall or a structure or something or, or a dam, whatever. They would take these rocks and they would put them in the net. Then they would fold the net back over and they would drag these rocks out of the river. Okay? That's the example, that's the word the Holy Spirit revealed to John to use for this. This is what God is indicating about himself in terms of man's ability, no one, thank God, and what is required to bring him to God. God has to drag us. Okay? That's the word. Now, this is precisely the parable that the Lord told about the dragon. Right? Exactly. Now watch this. This is exciting. Okay? It's going to change no one to anyone. Isn't that the opposite? If I say no one, maybe everyone would be a technical uh, opposite, exact opposite, but we'll just say anyone. So I'm changing scripture here. Anyone can come to Jesus, and instead of unless the Father, I'm going to say if that person, if they want to. Okay? Now, which gospel do you hear today? Anyone can come to Jesus if they want to. Is that, isn't that what we hear? Isn't that the evangelistic? Oh, repent and believe it. You, you, God loves everybody, and you can... And, Anybody can come to Jesus. That is a distortion of the teaching of Scripture, of Jesus' own words. Jesus didn't say that. He never said that. He said, nobody can come to me unless God does it. So, again, when we talk about the will of man and the will of God, God has a will because we know some people are saved. So he's done this work in them. He's elkusaved them. Right? He's dragged them. So it's it's good to put out a couple dots because this is a wonderful illustration. But just to look at the continuity of Scripture in revealing this work of God. <coughs> right? What was the garden like? Right? Uh, you don't. Did God really say? Right. He just did. Yeah. And you know what? Well, and that's what 
self-will does. If you go back to Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14, right, when Satan was making this proclamation that he was going to be like the Most High, right. and he says, he goes through this whole litany of I wills. I will become like the Most High. I will do this. I will. I, the, the exercise of the will is what John Owen called Luciferian. Mm -hmm. it, it, the to think that somehow my will is going to please God apart from his, his intervention is, is ludicrous. Well, and the, it's interesting that passage in Isaiah 14, if you go to the beginning of that passage, it's talking about a literal man who has exalted himself in such a way that he looks exactly like Lucifer, which is why that yeah. Like that. yeah. That's the point. Right. This is what you get. Correct. Yep. And so some other issues that come up from this topic, and we could go through here, but, but Scripture talks about desire. Nobody desires. There's no one calls upon the name of the Lord. No one desires. All men prefer darkness in John 3, and, and so, so forth. So we see all of these things, right? But some other questions that are raised, the problem of evil, right? Does, God, does this make God the author of evil? If he decrees all things and his will is perfect and so forth, uh, does he become the author of evil? Not going to talk about it right now. But these are some of the questions that are raised by this. How we see God and his attributes. Fairness, love, right? God's not loving. If he doesn't save everybody, he's not loving. It's not fair for him to send people to hell, so forth. That'd be a question that comes from the study of the will of God and the will of man. Evangelism. Why share the gospel if God's already chosen who he'll save? Right? Uh, even further. Uh, prayer. Why should we pray if God already has everything determined? These are very practical questions about the will of God and the will of man, right? And then finally, avoiding heresies, because I have no clue how much time I have left, but just to go through this list, not to discuss it, but to go through it is important, right? Fatalism. This is a potential heresy, that if you come to the wrong spot, wrong place on this issue, uh, you are going to come down, you could come down on one of these heresies. So fatalism. And by the way, fatalism is not the decrees of God. Just because God has everything set, all events predetermined, this is not fatalism. Fatalism, by definition, is the absence of a being doing it. It's just, it's the universe. It's just a result of your choices. There is no God necessarily. Right? Fatalism is just it's removing a, a, the person and the being and the mind of a creator. Okay. Uh, deism. Oh, well, there's just a God and he kind of hands off, so whatever happens, happens. Right, William Paley. Uh, autonomy, self-rule. We talked about that, right? You just read a, a passage from Romans 1. There's that danger, right? I don't care what God says. I don't care about his law. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Pelagianism, which is an old, uh, old heresy that goes back to the 300s A.D. Uh, you know, Pelagius, a British monk, uh, basically came around. And he was teaching that uh, there's this little spark of goodness in everything, in everything. And it's that little spark that when you hear the gospel, it ignites. You respond with that little bitty small speck of goodness to the gospel, and now it's a, it's a synergistic work. It is a work that is cooperative between you and God.
He does 99.9%. But that 0.1% of goodness, that's what it takes. I don't know if that's a compliment or a... If I'm going to be stuck in the meat section, I would like to at least be desired. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and then the order of salutis, which is simply the order of salvation. How does God operate? How does he say What's first? Election, uh, you know, choice, belief, uh, predestination, all of those different things. What's the order of those? It's possible to get them mixed up or to even eliminate some, leave some out in the pro-column for free will. So that's an important thing. Open theism, Clark Pinnock and some others uh, pushed for this. That's basically that God does not know what's going to happen tomorrow. He's waiting to find out what you're going to do so he can figure out something, a way to react. So does God predetermine all things? Well, he only knows contingencies. He only knows that if you do this, this is going to happen. But he's not going to arrange circumstances for this to happen. Well, that's a heresy, right? Open theism. Man uh, working cooperatively with God in, in history and in time. Diminishing God and elevating man. We see that in uh, some of the cults, uh, Mormonism, and, and so forth. Um, and, uh, and that pretty much takes us through. There was one other thing I was going to say, but I forgot what it is. Um, again, this is a super fast you know, uh, view of this. Uh, but I hope that it's something that you do consider... Um, studying more about it. Because some of the Puritans, some of my favorite authors, some of the people who've really devoted time, their whole lives into these topics, have written great works and great uh, treatises on this topic. Uh, John Owen being one, one of the foremost. Jonathan Edwards, who did as well, Freedom of the Will. Martin Luther, uh, Bonnier did. Bunyan on the fear of God. Really. Bunyan is fear of God. Um, you know, and you can see even some of that come through with Pilgrim's Progress and some other things. Yeah, so so there's just some great um, Thomas uh, uh, Boston, like we, we talked about um, earlier. So take the time to read some of those those people. Any questions or, or comments? in God's will.
Right, but so that doesn't exist. Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that your word reveals about who we are, who you are, uh, what our duties are to you. And, uh, Lord, we just ask that this would be a means of uh, growth for us, a a means of uh, evangelism and spreading your word. We thank you that you are in control of all things, everywhere, all the time. And we ask now that you would prepare our hearts to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.